So if you would turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 4, this morning we're going to consider verses 1 through 6. I'm going to kind of fly over a bit of verses 1 through 3 from a couple weeks ago. But the main thrust of our message this morning is going to be in verses 4 through 6. And when I say the main thrust is going to be 4 through 6, the main thrust is going to be verse 4, particularly. Um, as is our custom, we will read the passage um, under consideration this morning, and then we'll dissect this passage uh, for understanding. So as you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word from Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what may, must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of, the, of burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. This is God's word. To our God who is enthroned in heaven, we pray. We ask, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see the majesty of the throne. Help us to know the character of our God who is on the throne. Help us to see you, Lord, in your holiness, in your righteousness, in your judgment, in your tender mercy, in your grace toward all sinners of all tongues, of all tribes, of all nations. And we ask, Lord, that you would move us to worship as we consider Revelation chapter 4. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we're going to see in this passage a magnificent description of the glory of God. We'll see God's sovereign authority as he rules over all the circumstances of earthly life. We will see the holiness of God, his purity, his sinlessness. We will see his power to execute justice. We will see the grace of God as he saves his chosen people and he brings them into his presence. We will see the one on the throne. The God is the one that we can trust. We can trust him even when he appoints suffering and spiritual warfare to us. We will see that in our spiritual warfare, in every earthly struggle, that our compass, our true north, is the throne of God. We will see that God is our answer in difficulty. That he who sits on the throne is an avenging God against the enemies of our souls. And that he is also, at the same time, a compassionate Savior who is worthy of our worship. So let us look at verse 1. After these things, I looked and behold, the door standing open in heaven... And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here and I will show you these things what 
that must take place after these things. So metatauta, that is the Greek word, after these things. In the second vision, a door uh, to heaven is open to John, and John will give uh, a vision, uh, is given a vision not of the church on earth, but or of Christ in the midst of that church, but of heaven. He's given a glimpse of the glory of God on the throne. And the one who called John to see the glory of the throne is none other than Jesus. He tells us that the same voice, it's the same voice that sounded like a trumpet. It's the same voice. The first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet, is the same voice that is speaking to him now. The same voice of chapter 1, verse 10. When he says, I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. Our text tells us that it is this first voice of the first vision that John now hears. Metatauta, after these things, he hears the voice again and is given a second vision. And this second vision is the vision of heaven. After the first vision, where the voice spoke to me sounding like a trumpet, he's now speaking to me uh, to come into an open door of heaven and to see and to behold what must take place after these things. One of the glorious things about this passage that I've discovered over the past couple of weeks is that it is rich with the gospel, that the gospel is clearly seen in this passage in multiple ways. Number one, the closing phrase, after these things, See, it brings us into this idea of the heavenly perspective on the things which much must take place in the last days, that the time is near, that we're living in the last days. When Christ the Master returns, he's asking us this one question, will we be faithful? But the first thing that we see that is, is centered and, and brings us into mind the gospel of Jesus Christ is the door opened in heaven to John. It is important for us to see who it is that opens the door and how it is that one might enter the door. The only one who can open the door to heaven for John and for any of us is Christ Jesus. To the church of Philadelphia, remember, uh, Jesus said in Revelation 3, he said, He who is holy and he who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one will open. See, we cannot open the door to heaven ourselves, nor can we really open the door of salvation in our own religious piety or in our good works. The door of heaven must be opened to us by the only one who is holy, sinless, separate, unfailing, faithful. And it is only the one whom the Father has given the key. It is he who can open the door to heaven. There's no other way in which a person might be saved except to have the door of heaven opened to them. Remember what Jesus uh, said to the disciples in John chapter 10. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But the one who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep listen to his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he puts all his own sheep outside, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. However, a stranger they will simply not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of a stranger. Jesus told this as a figure of speech, but they did not understand what things uh, which he was saying to them, what they meant. 
So then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I am the door of the sheep. All those who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came so that they would have life and have it abundantly. So this is Jesus, the voice of the sheep. And John, this one of his sheep, he says, Behold, there's a do- there's an open door. I am opening the door to heaven. Come and see what must take place after these things. Another part of the gospel that we can clearly see is this in verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit. Immediately I was in the Spirit. See, John's being called up to heaven to see things from the perspective uh, of heaven because it's the only vantage point of heaven that things happen here on earth can be properly understood and can be seen for what they really are, to see things as God sees them. But the same voice who called him to deliver a message to the church is the same voice that invites him into heaven. It is the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of God at work in us that brings us into His presence. We can't come by our own flesh, by our own strength, you see. The door must be opened and we must be moved in the Spirit to enter in to the presence of God. The same voice that calls Him to deliver the message to the church is the same voice that has opened the door for John to see a vision of the glorious throne. John doesn't declare that he has entered and transported or that he has uh, seen a vision and he's not on the w- and he's still aware of his surroundings, but that he's been transformed into a profound state in the spirit that he might look upon the glory of God. And that's us, isn't it? We must be transformed. We must be changed by the spirit to see God, to get salvation, to be uh, ushered into his presence. And what does John see? Well, what we're going to see is John gets a description. What is John getting a description of? He was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one seated on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Again, more of gospel proclamation in just who God is. Who God is proclaims the gospel. Who this one who is sitting on the throne proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ clearly. See, the purpose of this vision is to show that all things are governed by the Lord on the throne. And we must understand the condition of the world is theocentric. That is, that the condition of the world is centered upon God. From the throne, the center of the universe, sits the God that we worship. And God controls everything that occurs in the physical and spiritual realms at the same time. This includes the spiritual warfare that we experience. It includes every trial, every trouble we go through. And if we think about this, we want to make sense of our lives, our illnesses, our losses, our faith, and our focus. We must be firmly anchored upon And our starting point is motivated by the throne of God. If you're going through trouble, go to the throne and see who He is. If you have doubts, go to the throne. You'll see who He is. And I'll say further later on, we're going to see who we are. And it's amazing at who God has made us to be. 
Our starting point is the throne of God. And John begins describing God in this way. He who was sitting on the throne was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. See, so this is a vision. Uh, not an actual sight of a physical reality, but what he does see is the outshining of God's glory and the glory that is similar in appearance to three things. He was he who was sitting was like a jasper stone. Similar. The jasper is only used in Revelation, and it's uncertain what it really is, but from looking at chapter 21, verse 11, we kind of get an idea of what this jasper stone is. In 21.11, it says, having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very valuable stone like a stone of crystal clear jasper. And in this section, he's talking about the new Jerusalem uh, descending out of heaven, having the glory of God, uh, and her life was unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The jasper stone and the God it represents in this visions are described as exceedingly valuable. It's also that it's clear. It's crystal. It's something like a diamond. A diamond, you know, has great value. And the most, the most uh, valuable of diamonds, their flashing brilliance, is that they are pure and without blemish. So the God we worship is described here as the one who is pure, who is holy and of infinite value. The second description in verse 3 is sardius in appearance. It's another stone. The better spelling of this word is Sardis, as you might uh, remember the church in, in chapter three, was that this was, that he not only was God, this God that he's uh, before is pure and holy and of infinite value beyond any created thing, but he was a God who was exacting, a God of justice, a God who required payment for sin. The whole world would be in a terrible condition if this is all we saw. But there's good news about the God we worship. John continues his description here in verse 3, and he says, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. So we have a stone that is blood red like a ruby. When we think of Sardis, of judgment, wrath, and we think, we see here, we see also at the same time, there's this, there's this judgment of God, the holiness of God. But then there's the promise of the rainbow. So as we look at these two colors that these represent, the holiness of God, the wrath of God, the judgment of God against sin, they represent the purity and the justice of God. If this is all that we knew, we must remember the rainbow. The rainbow was given as a sign to Noah as a covenant. This sign was to, to Noah that his family would be saved from the wrath of God in the ark where we see this rainbow is a symbol of God's mercy and of God's salvation. It's a sign of God's goodness, of God's grace. In the center of the universe, there's a throne. And on that throne sits a holy, pure, valuable, just, exacting, merciful, gracious God who has given salvation to us in Jesus Christ who believe on Him and turn from the sin that nailed Him to the cross. The rainbow emanating from the throne, notice it is green in color. What does green remind us of? It reminds us of new life. It promises new life in the gospel, right? A new life, one that is of refreshing, that comes from the Lord. A new life, everlasting life. So far this morning, I've reminded us of what we looked at a couple weeks ago. So the God on the throne, his nature, his character, 
even how his appearance describes the gospel. Now we're going to look at what's going on around the throne, upon the throne, what comes out of the throne, and what is before the throne. And further, we will see the people of God who are in his presence around the throne, who are those who are ushered into the presence of holy God. Who is it that is ushered into the presence of holy God? Who are the people of promise? Who are the people who receive grace and not wrath? Who are those? Well, let's look at verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the throne I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. So the question is, who are the 24 elders? Well, first, we need, we need to consider the promise of new life in the description of God as the emerald on the rainbow. We go back to verse 3. The people in the presence of the throne must be the people of promise. But why 24? Who is represented by the 24? See, these 24 elders are not given names in our text. We cannot speculate exactly which each person represents, which each elder represents. We can't say exactly who they are. But these 24 elders represent those whom God has saved, the people of promise from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now the proof that this is not just mere speculation on my part, let's look at Revelation 21, verses 10 through 14. Verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out from heaven, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a valuable stone, like a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and the 12 gates, 12 angels. And names were written on the gates, which are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north, three gates on the south and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones. And on them were the 12 names of the apostles of the Lamb. So as we look at this passage, we see 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the Lamb together. They make up the door and the foundation upon which the elect enter the kingdom of God. You may have been taught in church that God has one promise for Israel and another promise for the church. It is clear in this passage that God makes no distinction. These are the 24 elders. It is the sum total of all who are saved by grace. It is the sum total of them, and he doesn't name them or, dis- or make a distinction. These 12 of Israel, these 12 of the apostles of the Lamb. No, it's 24, the full number of all the people of God, uh, the elect of God. There's no distinction. These are the people of promise. The 24 represents the elect of God who were given faith to believe. This is just a representative number of the people of one promise. The promise that in Christ Jesus, by faith, the elect of God will enter into the presence of God for eternity. The totality of the New Testament affirms this to be true. In the book of Acts, uh, chapter 15, verses 7 through 9, it says, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, 
cleansing their hearts by faith. In Ephesians chapter 2, looking at verses 14 through 22, For He Himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in Himself He might make the two into one man, thus establishing peace. And He might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you're also being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. One people. One people. And this, what makes us one is Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all things that God has spoken about earlier throughout the whole Bible. I want us to know this, that the Bible is, is Christ-centered, gospel-saturated from the beginning to the end. And here we see the fullness of who Christ is and what He's done. Don't we? When we see in the New Testament that He broke down the wall and He took all things that would separate us from the people of God, the people of God are one. Whether they believed in the coming Jesus Christ in the Old Testament by faith, or whether they believed in Christ in the New Testament, or whether we believe today by faith, it is that same faith that unites us to the people of God and that we are one and that God makes no distinction. We are people of the promise. The promise is that if you believe, you will be ushered in to the presence of God for eternity, forever. Further, I want us to consider the clothing that the 24 elders are wearing. This, this, Even the clothes they're wearing affirms that they represent the full number of the people of the promise. They're clothed in white garments. They were clothed in white garments. And white robes indicate those that have been purified through a faithfulness that has been tested through trial and tribulation. When we consider Daniel 11.35, some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. Daniel 12.10, many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will uh, understand, but those who have insight will understand. The 24 have been cleansed through spiritual warfare. The people who enter the kingdom of God, the people of promise, are those who have been preserved and are being preserved in Christ Jesus. These are those, just like in chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 say, these are those who have overcome spiritual warfare, who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess him, his name, before my Father and before his angels. 
Church, we can trust that in these evil times that we live in, spiritual battles that we undergo, that God, who is sovereign, is not only guiding the troubles that we suffer and the trials that we suffer, but that He has the good purpose of purifying us through them and that we will be clothed in purity and will one day be ushered into His presence. Consider what Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 through 11 says. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altars of the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the full number of their servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. The 24 clothed in white represent all of us who will be tested and purified and granted entrance into the presence of God. Revelation 7-9 says this, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and all peoples and all tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes. And palm branches were in their hands. So we should take notice that these 24 elders, the representatives of the full number of the people of promise, they're seated upon thrones. They are clothed in white. They have been refined as, as, as through trial and through tribulation that Christ Jesus has held on to them. Even in the worst of conditions in the world, he has brought them fully there and he has, he has clothed them and he's given them faith to persevere. And not only that, not only that, Notice this. They had golden crowns on their heads. The full number of the people of promise. Notice this too. They are seated upon thrones and given golden crowns on their head. These are the people of God's promise. So if one has put their faith and their trust in Christ Jesus, these who have been preserved and are being uh, and are persevering through trial. They've been purified as God's people. They're not only in the presence of God, but they've been rewarded with rule and reign. Notice that they, they are seated upon thrones. They, they've been given rule and reign with God. In the prologue of Revelation chapter 1, it tells us that the one who loves us and released us from our sins has made us a kingdom and priests unto our God. And if we think about the song of the elders in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Church, do you live in the reality that you are a kingdom of priests unto God? Now, That in this evil age, the church has been appointed to spiritual warfare as God's people. And I would ask you this. Are you willing to suffer in this age that you would be refined and purified and enthroned in the presence of God? Are you willing to be marginalized in your public life that you would be exalted in eternity? I boldly assert the testimony of the scriptures that if you're unwilling to suffer in this life, you will not experience the glory, the comfort, and the reward that awaits the people of God in the next. If you're unwilling to suffer. 
I don't know if any of you guys have heard of Jordan Peterson, but he speaks about Christ in a way that just blows my mind. Although he's not yet a Christian, I think he's on his way. I think he's quite close. And he speaks about somebody who goes through some severe neurosis. And they can't even leave their apartment. And he says, just like Christ in the garden. Christ in the garden is sweating blood. Because he knows what's next. But Christ is brought to glory because he was willing to suffer. Nobody could make him willing to suffer. No one can make, make a, a person who is, is in severe neurosis. You can't make them willing to do something. If you force that person who can't get out of their apartment, you force them to go out, they haven't done anything. But if they know that health happens on the other end, I'm totally paraphrasing him, okay? <laughs> that if health happens on the other end of it, that person must stand up and be willing to suffer. They must willingly, of their own volition, get up and walk out the door. They must be willing to suffer. And if you think about us, I was thinking about this this week, about the willingness to suffer, because I'm often not willing, right? I want the path of least resistance and all of those things. But what if I couldn't get out of my apartment because I was crippled with fear of what might be out there? But on Monday, I get up and I get to the door and I turn around and I go back and sit down. Tuesday, I open it. Wednesday, I go a couple steps down this, the stairs, but I rush back in. Maybe after a week or a month, I make it all the way to the bottom. I've overcome. I'm willing to suffer the consequences. And you know how Jesus Christ, right? I said this when we were going through the Gospel of John, and I, and I truly believe this as we see the picture in the Gospel, that the road, the path to glory for Christ was paved with suffering. And I don't think that we should think that we would get any less. That if we want glory, we must be willing to suffer. We must be willing to be marginalized in our public life that we would be exalted in eternity. We must be willing to be thought less of than the world. And this is how we rule and reign. This is how we rule and reign in this world in contrast to what it is. We rule and reign by faith, by trust in Christ and who He is. And I, I, I will boldly say this again from the testimony of the Scriptures. If one is not willing to suffer in this life, you will not experience the glory and the comfort and the reward that awaits us in Christ Jesus. Provided that we suffer with Him, there is a promised crown. Think about Revelation 2 and verse 10, what he says to the churches. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you have tribulation for 10 days, but be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. See, the crown, the promise 
comes through suffering. And I think that as most uh, of us have been taught about the book of Revelation, it's like there's, at least I was taught and brought up in this system where there's this like the escape plan. They just escape trouble. That's how this book was taught to me. But as I've come to understand it, there is no escape plan. The escape plan, well, actually it is. There is an escape plan, sort of. It's faith in Christ Jesus. But there's no escaping suffering. There's no escaping trouble. He is the one who preserves us in those troubles. He is the one who purifies us in troubles. And that the road to glory is paved with trouble. Boy, can we make sense of the world if we understand that? That there's a purpose to, to this, the frustrations of this life? I think sometimes we can look at that and think that there's, there's no purpose in suffering, right? You can look at all the suffering and go, what is the purpose in it? God tells us there's great purpose in it. That in suffering, I am purifying you. I am sanctifying you. In suffering, I am uh, readying you for the crown of glory that is soon to come. I am readying you for entrance into heaven. It makes sense. Just seeing the scripture this way makes sense to me. And it gives me hope. And it gives me joy to know that whatever trouble comes my way, it is, it is like the scripture says. It is for God's good purpose in me. He is working all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Right? It makes perfect sense to me. I encourage and I exhort you today, church, Christian in this church, don't give up. The reward is coming. Paul's encouragement to Timothy is one that we should all embrace, I think. One in which we should set our energy and our effort upon so that at the end of our days we can confidently say what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Verse 5. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. See, as we think about this, regardless of how rampant evil seems to run and to cause God's people to suffer, they can know that His hand superintends everything for their good and for His glory. This is demonstrated by the fact when we look at chapter 6, which we'll get to in detail in the coming weeks, that from chapter 6 through uh, chapter 16, all of the judgments of God come from the throne. For example, chapter 6, verse 2, Behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. In verse 4 of chapter 6, it was granted to him to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. Chapter 6, verse 8, Authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with a famine, with pestilence, and by the wild beasts of the earth. What we see here in this passage is surrounding the throne are the people of God, a people that are purchased of God, a people upon whom God has given mercy. And we see the thunderings and the lightning that emanates from the throne. It should serve as a reminder to the people of God that He has shown us mercy, that He still yet remains a God of justice, and that He will judge those who break His law. 
And then before the throne, we see the seven lamps of the Spirit of God burning before the throne. And this reminds us of chapter 1. In chapter 1, the lighted lamps represented the Holy Spirit. The sevenfold light describes the full and complete Spirit of God in perfection. The fullness of His divine nature and His work of God, they are before His throne. When we look upon the throne, we as Christians are reminded that God by His Spirit completely performs the work of salvation. That He completely performs the work of sanctification. He is the one who illuminates and reveals the Word of God to us. We see in the thundering and the lightning the voice of God declaring the authority and His righteousness in His wrath against those who transgress His law. But for us, the church, we see the Holy Spirit before the, the throne, the sevenfold Spirit of God, that which sanctifies us, that which will change us, that which will transform us into the likeness of the one in whom we praise. Verse 6, And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. So when we look at the meaning of the, the image of the sea of glass, clear as crystal, um, it's not quite evident to us in this passage. But when we look at the symbolic language of Revelation, we should always look at other symbolic descriptions of the same like in the Old Testament. It will give us a, a somewhat of an understanding of this. And when we look at this, what I want us to, to look at is to look at its polar opposite. It'll give us an idea of what is going on here. In Isaiah 57, verses 20 and 21, it says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quieted, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So notice the contrast here. This is a sea of glass, like crystal, calm smooth, peaceful. See, the people of God are at peace with God on the throne, knowing all that He is, knowing that He's a righteous and holy God. Notice, know, knowing that in Him, His wrath is justified against those who break the law. But the people of God see before the throne a sea of glass, of peace, of calm, Around the throne, the people of God are not like the wicked whose guilt and shame cannot be quieted. Before the throne, the seas of doubts are calmed. The storms of anxiety, the guilty conscience are no more. The environment for the people of God's mercy and the grace is one of peace and tranquility. In the storms of life, if we are to find peace, we must begin at the throne of God. If we want peace in our lives, we must go to the throne of God. We must be reminded of His nature, of His holiness. We must be reminded of His wrath and His justice. And we must also remind ourselves daily that through faith, by grace, in Christ Jesus, He has promised us an eternal peace that goes beyond all understanding. I love this passage in that we can clearly see the gospel of God's grace. The door of heaven is open to us who would believe. It is opened only in Christ Jesus. It is only by the Spirit that we can enter in to the presence of God. 
It is a spiritual move. It is a, a work of God. We see that in God's grace, he's given us a promise of new life. And with that promise, in the presence of God, he will have purified us and cleansed us. I can't imagine the day when my sinful flesh will be no more. Oh my, what a day that will be. What a day it will be when I, my thoughts are completely pure. When my motivation is completely pure and holy and right. And then when I look at the world that I live in and the trouble that's there, I'm like, this is for that purpose. God has purposed the trials and the troubles that I go into to purify me, to cleanse me, to clothe me in white. And one day he will give me a crown of righteousness where I, in his presence, will rule and reign with him, where the seas and the, the storms of life and the troubles will be calmed. And then I am also keenly aware that in this passage I see that God, by His Holy Spirit, is ever before us, is helping us, is guiding us, is directing us. We have help in the Holy Spirit in this life. We have Christ Jesus who has promised to us, looking back at chapter 1, He promised us this that He loves us, that He has released us from our sins by His blood, and that He has made us a kingdom of priests unto our God. And that, as we saw, that He is one who promises us that we will partake at the same time in trouble, in kingdom, but in all of it, it is Christ who is preserving us all the way to the end. That, my brothers and sisters, is hope and it's good news. But at the end of this, at the end of all of this, if we don't get this, if we don't get this from looking at the throne of God, if we don't get this, we have missed the whole point. So I'm going to close on this point. Having heard all that, the sinking feeling in you should be that God is worthy of all of my praise and worship. That God is worthy of all of me given to Him. That's the conclusion. That's the conclusion of looking at who God is for us and who God has made us to be, is that He alone is worthy of our allegiance, worthy of worship.